new beginning. Welcome to the Grief Dreams Podcast. Thank you again for tuning in. It's always amazing to have you guys listen and to, to see people are listening. It's, it's always amazing. And if this is your first time coming on, thank you for trying us out. We always appreciate the listens and hopefully you learn something from the guests that we have on uh, today and also in prior episodes coming up. So I am Joshua Black, the, uh, the guy who's doing the Grief Dream research at Brock University. And we have our guest host today, Jade Carling Black. On today, Sean Ram is unavailable. So, Jade, how are you doing today? I'm well, thank you. That's good. That's really good. And so, I'm really excited for today's guest. Uh, I'm going to read her bio, but I, it's one of those guests that are just like so lucky. I feel like it's going to be like an amazing episode. And I'm just so thrilled that she was willing to come on and talk about her recent loss that, you know, for most of our guests that come on, it's usually a couple of years. We have Serena Dyer, who's co-authored a book with her father, Dr. Wayne Dyer, titled Don't Die With Your Music Still In You, about her experience growing up with spiritual parents, which was released June 2014, about a year before her father actually died. Serena is a contributor to Huffington Post, Mind Body Green, and Positively Positive, where she shares stories on varying subjects, including meditation, travel, the spiritual journey, and life with her brothers and sisters. Regularly appeared on stage with her father at Hay House events and is a featured speaker at spiritual, motivational, and wellness events around the United States. Her subject matter covers a wide range of topics, but she always seeks to share her personal spiritual perspective in a way that encourages introspection and personal growth. While completing her master's degree at the University of Miami, Serena was moved by startling statistics concerning the global tragedy of human trafficking. Although most of her work is done in private, Serena does add her voice to raise awareness via the charity Stop Child Trafficking. Serena resides in South Florida with her husband, Matt, and daughters, Sailor and Windsor, and it was only nine months ago that her stepson Mason died at 19 years of age, which led her on a path of self-discovery into loving herself. So thank you so much, Serena, for coming on today. Thank you for having me. I hope I live up to that bio. I think that was, I was just quite, was quite just a say amazing bio. Yeah, I, you know, I didn't write that, but I am, um, I'm very touched by it. I think that's the first time I've heard it read to me like that. So I, I will do my best to live up to that. Well, I got to know who your agent is because I want to buy it like that one day. <laughs> <laughs> I'll put you in touch with, uh, with, with who helped me on that one. So first, I want to start off by saying congratulations on the new baby that you're expecting at Christmas. Thank you. Yes, that was uh, quite the surprise. So we have Sailor, who is three, and my dad passed away when she was about five months old. And when she was six months old, I found out that I was expecting again, and it turned uh, out to be our other daughter, Windsor Wayne, who was named after my father. And um, six, seven months after Mason passed away, we found out we were expecting again, and this time it is a little boy. We just uh, found out it's a boy last week, so I can't help but think that he and my dad have sent us another little blessing, and it's it's really an exciting thing for us because. I wasn't sure if we were going to have more or, you know, what the odds were of having a boy after two girls, but we're thrilled. So thank you. Very exciting. Very exciting. So will this, will this baby have a, because Sailor and Windsor are kind of like water, ocean theme kind of names, I guess. So will the boy have a similar name or? So I have a list in my phone, which is going to be funny, but I have a list in my phone of baby names that I love that I have had. Uh, I've had the list that was originally on paper, and now it's been in my phone. And I think I've had this list since I was maybe 16 years old, because um, I always hear different names and, and love them, and I've added to it. But the top three names on my list have never changed, and those are Sailor, Windsor, and Forrest. And so I think we're going to have to stick with Forrest because um, I've had this idea that if I ever had a son, he would be named Forrest. And my husband happens to really like the name. And before Mason passed away, I told him that if we ever had a boy, I would probably name him Forrest. And he seemed to think that was a cool name. So now it seems like uh, that's the name we're going to go with. That's amazing. I know your your sister, Sky, who we interviewed on episode 70, she, um, she had mentioned your list. 
<laughs> and she, um, yeah, and and so you know she she thought you might obviously choose something from that list, and you would probably have, uh, you know, if you had any any more kids, then you know you would have you had something ready. So that's very cool. I like Forrest. It's a very unique name for a boy, and um, exciting. Thank you. Yeah, we're excited. Do you think there's a possibility that name will change after you see the baby? You, you know, I'm kind of somebody. Yeah, I'm kind of somebody that that both prior pregnancies, I I knew what the name was going to be, and I stuck to it. And when the baby was born, and for both of my daughters, it just seemed like that, you know, that was the baby, and they were Sailor and Windsor. And so I don't think so. I don't think I'm somebody that thinks that the baby would would change the name for me. But you know, I guess you never really know. But I think I, I think I would stick with it because I think in my mind the baby already is Forrest. So when he comes out, he would just take that name. Right. I know exactly what you're saying. I had the same feeling with my daughter. I named her River, and she, and I knew, like the whole time that that was going to be her name. And there was like I knew, you know, it's the same thing. Once I saw her, that it wasn't going to change. She was already. River, and then when she came out, I'm like, "Yep, that's River." Like she just suited her name, and I knew that that you know I had, you know, we had picked the right one, or she had picked the right one, or however you want to uh, put it. So very cool. Well, that's that's a beautiful name. Thank you. Yeah, we wanted like a nature name or like a water name, and and so River was something that uh, yeah, you know, we were both on board with, and it and it worked out. And I love her name, and, and like I said, it really suits her. So That's beautiful. So, Sri, I'm curious, how many names do you have in your phone? Oh, uh, probably close to 20. <laughs> so the top three or four have never changed, but um, I've continued to add to the list. So Waylon was actually on my list. Um, but when my sister found out she was having a boy, I suggested it to her because I just felt like it really suited her and um and she she loved it and so did her husband so uh, you know they they were happy to use that name so you know his name is still on the list but I would cross it off now because I wouldn't name another baby Waylon but um yeah it's just something that I've always liked doing is just hearing unique words or or names and adding it to this list I don't know why I just have always sort of enjoyed that process of of thinking about a name for a child that's really unique yeah, that's pretty, it's pretty interesting. And like at such a young age to start making lists. So I guess you're always wanted to be a mother and destined to be a mother. I have always wanted to be a mother. Wow. Okay. So it, I, I think it's, you know, it's so amazing that you are going to have a third child. Will you have like, since you have 20 names, is that, you know, like the length of children you want or no. <laughs> I know your dad had a lot. <laughs> Absolutely not. No, I think, um, you know, let's see how I feel after this one. I would be willing to possibly consider another, but I, um, I don't think I would go past four. So let let's see how it goes with this one. But but I really do enjoy it. It is a lot of work and it's very time consuming and it's very draining. Um, but it's also the most fulfilling, rewarding experience of my life. And the idea of this being my last baby maybe makes me feel a little bit sad. So that makes me think that. Maybe I would go for the fourth, but I, I can't imagine I would go past that. Wow. Okay. Well, now we know. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to sort of maybe even tell the audience and tell, you know, like tell you a little bit that, you know, like over the, I've been following you for a while and over the last nine months, I really saw you, you know, talk about your grief journey really through Instagram that, you know, it was really, you know, unique for me to sort of see someone so open at the beginning of their journey uh, through um, using social media and having so many people comment on your posts about Mason and stuff. And so I really, that's why I'm really excited to have you on because, you know, so a lot of people will do that maybe afterwards, but like to have followed you beforehand and then for you to actually experience a loss is very interesting for me. And I have a ton of questions on that. But before um, I actually get into those. I really want you to see if you can, you know, maybe talk about Mason a little bit and your relationship with him, since I'm guessing this will be the focus of the podcast today. And also, what was it like for him and you when you started dating his dad? Right. So I met Mason when he was 10 years old. Um, I started dating his father 10, uh, when he was 10 years old. So I had gone on a couple of dates with his dad and then 
um, slowly I met him and my hu- my now husband, which is his father, Matt. My husband at the time had, uh, you know, full and primary custody of his son. And from the time Mason was very little, my husband had been the primary parent um, and had essentially had him full time and had raised him on his own. So my husband and Mason had a very, very close relationship. When I met Mason, he was a little boy. I mean, he was a 10-year-old boy, and I've always loved children. I kind of considered myself to be good with kids. And so Mason and I really hit it off. It wasn't like a, it wasn't like a strain. He didn't feel like I was stepping on his mom's toes in any way because that, that relationship wasn't very present for him. And I think he was really excited to bring in, um, you know, his dad had obviously dated before me, but he hadn't had somebody so consistent. So I think Mason was really excited to have somebody that was bringing in the sort of more feminine touch into his life and into their home. I moved in with them after a year of dating Matt and, um, and anybody that knows me knows that I love being a Susie homemaker and I love cooking. I love decorating. I love holidays. I love throwing parties. I love all of it. So that became sort of the basis of my relationship with Mason, which was making dinner every night, sitting down for dinner as a family, because that wasn't something that Matt and Mason did consistently with each other, even though Matt and him lived together, they were still kind of like a bachelor dad and his son. And, you know, they might eat some dinner while watching a game, but it wasn't like sitting down for dinner and talking about their day in that way. And, and so I definitely brought in a, a female touch, if you will. And Mason was really excited about that. Over time, I think there, there were definitely periods of time where there was strain in my relationship with Mason in particular and um, over, so let's see, I've been with Matt now for nine years, almost 10 years. And so maybe the first four or five years, there was a consistent, but like consistent meaning that they would pop up throughout the year, but not lasting, but like definitely pockets of time throughout the year where there would be strain in my relationship with Mason in particular. And I think a lot of that I mean, I know a lot of that had to do with my insecurity in my relationship with Matt, with his father, that um, there were times when I really just wanted it to be Matt and I, and I really just wanted to not have to be in a relationship with somebody who had to contend with, uh, you know, raising a child, because there were times when, for example, Matt and I were going to Europe, and it seemed like a fantasy to me, a fairy tale to go to Europe with my boyfriend and go to Paris, but you know, his son was coming. And so we were all sharing a room and sharing a room with a 11 or 12 year old boy at the time is not exactly, you know, part of the fantasy. And, um, and Mason and I are 13 years apart in age and Mason and uh, sorry, and Matt and I are 13 years apart in age. Matt is 13 years older than me and Mason is 13 years younger than me. So there were times when Mason and I would butt heads honestly, because of my own immaturity at that time or my own insecurity at that time. Um, But luckily, we were able to work through that. And one of the biggest reasons we were able to work through that is because Mason went to a wilderness camp. And while at this camp, he, he would meet, he was having some like behavioral things happening at school, nothing bad, just getting in trouble a lot. And um, while he was at this camp, he would be required to write letters to us and we had to write back to him and he had a counselor that he was working with a couple times a week with with other kids his age as well and I was really able to see things from his perspective and he was really able to see things from my perspective and I think that it, it was such a gift to us to have that experience because we really came to appreciate each other in a totally different way after that. And then shortly after that, Matt and I got engaged and it was sort of like all of those issues from before kind of just went away. We really just fell into this dynamic as a family. And I I've shared on social media, um, you know, Mason at our wedding gave just an unbelievable speech that I've posted uh, before just about, about that, about how, his dad was hard on him at times or demanded things of him at times, but that level of discipline that his father was sort of asking from him really impacted him in a positive way and how me coming into his life, how even though we butted heads, butt heads for a little while, how 
how moving past that allowed me to really become the mom role that he wanted and that I wanted to be. So that was kind of how our relationship evolved. And then um, Mason was just the type of person that has a wit about them that like, you know, you would describe them as the class clown, but in a really intelligent way, just in a really clever and funny way, always making adults and kids laugh. And that was, I think, one of his greatest gifts was his humor, his ability to find um, a way to articulate the obvious, but in a, in a way that really is just was just hysterically funny. I always thought he could have been a, a comedy writer or something because he just had that gift. Um, and he was also really athletic and very gifted in sports. And um, he was just an all-around fun person to be with and to be around. And he, he made us laugh more often than not. And then in, in his last year of high school, uh, which was last year, he started to have some issues with, you know, it started with things like smoking pot, which to be honest, we didn't, we didn't really think it was a big deal. We kind of thought, you know, well, when we were in high school, we had done that sort of thing. And it didn't seem like a big deal, but it kind of devolved from there into more things like getting pills. And so we really ramped up the supervision and structure and going to see a therapist with him and ultimately it came down to the fact that he he was able to find some of these pills um, at his school all a lot of kids at his school would dabble in in different things especially pills so it got to a point where he agreed that he should go live with his aunt in texas she lived on an army base and had kids his age so he did he went there for a little while and things were going well and then he went on a trip to North Carolina, and um, then he was seeing his mom while he was in North Carolina. He was going to stay with her, which was the first time in a very long time that he had spent any significant amount of time with his mom. And then uh, while he was in North Carolina, he bought drugs. Um, we know that he thought he was buying some cocaine because he was partying with kids the night that he died, and they said that he thought he was buying that um, I'm not saying that makes it better. It doesn't, but he thought he was buying one thing and it turned out he bought fentanyl and it, it uh, killed him immediately. Um, so he died in September nine months ago from a, oh. a drug overdose. Yeah. So young oh. and, and so, um, you know, I want to say, I think that any parent, of a teenager or any, any person who's ever had their time experimenting with kind of being reckless when they were young could understand how, you know, as somebody who's, you know, it's not like I've never tried drugs or, or done, you know, had my wild periods of time. I certainly have. And, and so has my husband, but it was something that we both viewed as kind of something that he would just outgrow that he was still for for a while, you know, maintaining a job and he was MVP of his rugby team and he had above a 3.0 grade point average and it kind of was a thing that we thought he would just outgrow it. He was just partying with his friends. He was just experimenting. And and then we thought, well, maybe it's getting a little bit more serious. And when he agreed to go live with his aunt in Texas, we really thought this is going to be a, a big turn for the better. That's going to kind of be put behind him. And it And it was for a while. And then he went to North Carolina and he kind of met up with some kids and things, I guess, um, took a turn for the worse, obviously, you know, in hindsight. But at the time, we still sort of thought of it as, you know, he's 19. He's going to outgrow this. And unfortunately, today, the so many of the drugs that young people are getting their hands on and experimenting with or getting addicted to, they're synthetic opioids or they're opioids and they're just so so deadly um, compared to even just 10 years ago. And um, he, he lost his life to that. Wow. It's so, I want to think it speaks so much to, because I, I really agree with everything you're saying about, um, you know, going through your, like the phase and the partying. And I had that as well. And like oh, so many people I know have that as well, but I think, you know, it's really valid in saying it's not the way that it used to be, like in terms of exploring and stuff. You don't know what you're getting and times have really changed. Like it's it's 
scary that even going through that stage of experimentation, like, you know, there's more risk and dangers in doing that at at this point. And like the, you know, the rate of people that are um, injured or fatalities from like fentanyl is like through the roof. You probably know even like where we live in Vancouver, we've had so many um, overdoses and so many lives affected by, by that. And same kind of situation, people think they're getting heroin or people think they're getting cocaine or, you know what I mean? It's just, and they think that that's what they're ingesting and it's something completely different. And then, you know, it results in, in a tragedy that is really sad and heartbreaking. So you had two young children at the time, obviously. How did yeah, you tell them? I had about, a, how did you, I'm sorry. How did you tell them about the death of Mason? Well, Windsor was, had just turned one. So she, right. she didn't, you know, it wasn't something that, that would have even made sense to her. You know, she was still just a 14 month old baby. Um, Sailor definitely, you know, knew Mason and loved Mason. And, and when my husband got the call, uh, he was at a meeting and he came home and it, it was almost like, you know, again, she was only two, had, had really just turned two. So she was still so young, but we just explained to her that Macy was in heaven, but he was going to be watching over her and he was her angel. And it just seemed like from the moment my husband came home from getting that call that both of our girls just had an understanding. They, My husband would sit um, for, for long periods of time and just cry, and they would both just go right over to him and sit with him and just sit quietly with him. I have so many photos, actually, from that time of of them both just, like, clinging to him. And I feel like, in a way, it was because they had, they either had a knowing that they needed to comfort their father or they could, you know, visibly see that he was upset and they wanted to comfort him. But they both were really attached, particularly to my husband, um, in those first few days and weeks of, of getting this news. And, um, and I know it was the greatest comfort that my husband had at that time was, was the two of them. But we are a, a very big family on um, on not making somebody that has died a uh, an off limit topic. Where we're we're a family that does not believe in being afraid to talk about them or to um, you know Mason's room is still in our house and his things are still in our house and and we go in his room regularly I mean the girls are always playing in there and it's become he his name has stayed a household name and we do not hide stories about him we do not avoid talking about him we talk about him we talk about stories we laugh memories pictures um every day and so he's still a very present thing in their life he's still a very present you know topic or person or or memory in their lives and we intend to always keep it that way we we unfortunately but also fortunately we had had some experience with that since my father had passed away just two years before mason almost exactly two years before mason so um when i lost my father it was a huge shock just like mason's passing and from very early on i i decided and remained committed to the idea of still talking to him, still talking about him, sharing stories with, you know, I only had Sailor at that time. My father passed away and she was just an infant, but making sure she knew who grandpa was and is and that he's with her and, and encouraging her to talk to him and talk about him. And so we had two years of that practice and I, I, I remember distinctly after Mason passed away, um, as our friends and family got the news, you know, everybody wanted to come over and especially to see my husband. And at first, Matt was like, I don't want to see anybody. I don't want to, I don't want to look at pictures. I don't want anybody coming over. And 
I sat him down after maybe two days of this, of him saying this and him feeling this way. And I said, I know this is going to sound really bizarre, but just hear me out. I said, the grief will always be with you. It might not always be as strong as it is right now, but you will always feel like you are missing someone. But the support and the love and the attention and the desire that everyone around you has to, su- to, to support you, that is going to go away. And right now, you are in the eye of the storm. And if you isolate yourself, you're never going to be back here where you can just allow yourself to completely surrender to the grief and welcome the support. And I said, I know it sounds bizarre to say you're, you're, you're in the thick of it right now. Embrace it and enjoy it. But that is what you should do because the support and the love, it goes away. And not because people are bad or, or mean. It's because people, they then lose their own, their, you know, friends and family lose their own person. And life goes on for everybody. And even though for Matt, it will never go on the same because this is his son. Once that period, that initial period of finding out is over, the people stop coming by and they stop calling and they stop sending food. And nobody's bad for doing that. It's just the way that it is. So my advice always is to just embrace that because there will come a time when you wish that somebody was calling you to talk about Mason or stopping by just to give you a hug about Mason and they won't be there. And and he said, you know, I think you're right, and and I'm going to do that. And he said, it's fine if people want to come by and if they want to bring food, and I'm I'm going to get through it. And and he would feel better. I mean, he, he ended up feeling better in the moment when he could talk to his friends and see his family and see people and just just share that grief because eventually that grief becomes your own. Wow. Well, that's, uh, I think it's amazing advice you gave him and, you know, how lucky he is to have you there to help guide him through such a difficult storm. I can't imagine losing a child um, and what it would Right, and like. I think that, right, and I think what, what often happens and, and what I really wanted him to understand is that what often happens is that when somebody dies, people, they don't know what to do and they don't know what to say. They just want to love you and they just want you to feel loved and they just want you to feel cared for. And I think it's a really um, important part of the entire experience to let yourself just be loved, in, especially in those first few weeks, to just let go of anything else that you think you need to do or have to do and just surrender to being as present as you can be throughout the grief. Because you're never going to be back to that initial first first few weeks. And it's a very, very unique time in anybody's life. And I think if you can stay present throughout, throughout that experience and throughout the teaching that, that losing somebody can give you, and if you can stay present throughout the morning, I think that you can have a a more holistic and healthier experience all around that will lead you to being able to connect with your loved one that has passed in a more meaningful way down the road. And I think that's ultimately the goal is to just stay present enough to to recognize that, you know, as my friend Ramdas always says, we're all just walking each other home. If you can stay present enough to remember that, that, at least for my beliefs, you will see them again. You will be reunited again. And, and when that happens, you will understand why it had to be the way that it was. But I think if you shut yourself off from the world and shut yourself off from the experience and the lesson, you shut yourself off from being able to connect with that loved one as well. Absolutely. I totally agree. And I feel like, too, like our initial reaction, yes, is to hide from it, like just isolate and hide and because it's almost too painful and then you know you just 
that just, I think, an automatic response for so many people to just recluse kind of thing and just let me sit this, sit with this and try and make sense of this. And But you're absolutely right. You're never going to have those moments again. Like, those moments are never going to people carry on with their lives. Those That intensity of support is never going to be there again. And you are going to be more alone with your grief. I mean... Um, so to right, use and that I, to your advantage, you know what I mean? To use that to your advantage, to allow all that love to come in, you know, for what it's worth and feel that all out. It's a, that's a very good advice. Yes. And I, I think that very often, especially when it is a child that has passed, when it is someone's, and I don't mean, you know, under the age of 18 or 21, I mean, when it is someone who has lost a child, even if that child is an adult, um, it's it's typically not the natural order of things. It's not the natural order of things for parents to bury their children. It's usually the other way around. And I think that that it's particularly important when you experience the loss of a child to become unafraid of of that child's memory of of that child's life. I think that so often when somebody loses someone, they become afraid of talking about them, afraid of being vulnerable to the pain that they are experiencing, and they almost block it off and that name become becomes unspoken for them and the memories become blocked. And I personally believe on a spiritual level that that the soul goes on that the body is is finite but the soul is not and i believe that we have um the ability to connect with the person who has passed while we are still alive because i believe that the soul is energy and we are energy and that energy can can uh, communicate or or give signs or whatever you want to call it and my my belief is that if you block that flow of energy, if you block that person, if you block that memory and that name, you do not allow them to come in and help you heal. And uh, we we were just very adamant from the very beginning that that was not going to be the case, that Mason was going to be as present in our home as he was while he was alive, and that um, we would be totally committed to remaining open to to discovering him in this new way. So I think that goes along with your philosophy. Like my next question was going to be, why do you post about your grief online? Because so many people don't because they, all that stuff that you just said, like is a summation of, I think why people don't, because it's a little bit taboo and it can make people uncomfortable and they don't know how to respond to it or it brings up their own grief or inability to sit with their grief. So is is that why you're so open about sharing? Because, like, I'm getting the idea, too, now that you're candid about everything. You've been very candid in this conversation about your relationship with your husband and how uh, your relationship with uh, Mason has involved and your role in that, talking about your insecurities and, you know, different things that you've experienced. And so that really goes along with how you've, you know, moved through this grief. So if you can just speak a little bit about your philosophy behind sharing on Instagram and allowing people to interact with you and give you feedback and their support and love, um, you know, a little bit about that. That would be great. Sure, yeah. Well, I, I've I've always been, my whole life, ever since I was a child, I was the kid that announced the things that my parents didn't want announced. I have never, <laughs> I've never known how to not be open. It's just the way that I am. So it's not been something that I've had to strive to be or I don't know. It's just something that I've always just been a very open person. And I also think that I gain personal strength in being willing to be vulnerable because I feel that when I am telling the truth, when I am telling the truth about what I'm experiencing, I feel that in some way it subconsciously gives other people permission to do the same. And the experience that I have is of of enormous growth for me and them. So selfishly, I enjoy authentic 
connection with people because I don't, I don't feel, I feel almost like enervated when I have a conversation with somebody that's uh, small talk or, or fluff. I'm very energized when I can talk to somebody about something that's real. And for me, these experiences are very real and very impactful. And I couldn't not share them because it's just the way that I am. I, I always have to share everything. And and the the result for me has been that so many people have been able to share their experience back. And I just love that sort of healing um, full circle nature of it. So I guess I share because I get, I get some type of fulfillment out of it. Right. And I think in many ways it sets the stage for, it gives other people permission and it sets the stage to have a substantial life, like you said, because if you kind of take the cue and get out there first and other people are like, oh, and she's okay with it. And that gives, you know, other people permission in the world to step forward with their things that they might be ashamed of or afraid to share or shouldn't talk about. And I, I really agree with you too about the part you know, being energized and fluff is sometimes very draining. Like you're like, okay, what's next kind of thing. <laughs> it's like coffee shop talk is it's everywhere. And there's so much of that, that, you know, there are certain personalities and characters that really thrive from meaningful conversations, something that's going to add that extra sparkle to your life, which is why we do this podcast. We want to talk about meaningful things that propel us to keep moving forward and feeling like, you know, there's purpose and, you know, it makes your life so meaningful. So I think that's, that's amazing. And, you know, that probably resonates with a lot of people. I, I hope so. <laughs> it it does. It really does. Like I know when I see your posts and stuff and it's like all my favorite people that I follow on social media and that I connect with are people that, you know, are candid about their lives and, and too much of the other stuff. And, you know, I think in a lot of ways we're starved for, you know, the authentic stuff. Like we just, we need it. We need it to feel whole and we need it to feel alive. And at least I do. Like, you know, my most amazing friendships and relationships are based on those really authentic engagements and, they give my life meaning and, you know, I've gathered that it's, it's really the same for you. And I know it's the same for Josh too. So. Yeah. The, uh, even for me reading your, just, just, you know, personal, when I started reading your posts about the loss, it, you know, it really saddened me, but it opened my eyes to some of the difficulties you were facing because you have all these beautiful photos of children and playing at the beach and, <laughs> and birthday parties you're like oh wow it's just an amazing life and you hear about these struggles and it connects to that truth and honesty of what life is and it also brought me back to my own loss and to think about my own loss in respect of what you're going through and i think that's the beauty of you know instagram and and being honest on on your platform is i think it allows other people to reconnect with maybe even losses that they have not shared or even just tragedy in their life that they don't think other people have, you know, like, so you make life real again. And I love that. And I really love that about what you do. And and your last post, I got to say, or second last post or something, um, it was about the, the dreams that you had. Um, and that was beautiful for me to see that not only you had a dream and you're willing to share it um, to raise the awareness, but how beautiful that dream was. Because there's, there's dreams that, you know, I see a lot of dreams. But that dream was so powerful. And I think I even started crying after I read it because it was just so moving. And usually the deceased don't, don't, they don't really speak for a long period of time. But in that dream you shared, he talked for a while and he had a lot of really cool insights for you. And I was just wondering, could you share that dream with us? Are you talking about the dream that I had right after he passed, right after Mason passed, where he was dancing with Sailor? No, I never heard that one. I, <laughs> the, the last one I heard was where he was telling you to release the guilt. Oh, okay. Okay. That was more recent. Yes. So I had a dream. So I've actually had a couple dreams with Mason and one of them I had, I want to say within a week of him passing away. And that was the first one that I had. And I just want to back up and give a little explanation here. So um, after my dad passed away, we became in my family and I became in touch with um, a woman, Karen Noe, who's a gifted medium. And um, we had talked briefly at a memorial for my father, 
with her about how if um, as a medium, one of the things she's able to do is connect with people who have passed away. But she also has taught courses on helping people understand when they have a real visitation. So, so after Mason passed away, I asked him to come to me in a dream. And one of the reasons I did that is because I was feeling a lot of guilt. When I would go to sleep at night, I would feel so much tightness in my chest, like just, just anxiety. And I felt that he wouldn't want me to feel this way, but I couldn't help but feel this way because I could only think back on all the things I had said or done that were not nice. And my husband kept saying to me, but, but, you know, so you guys had some fights or, so there were some times where things were heated, but what about, you know, and he would list a whole bunch of other things and I just couldn't get past the bad things. And I felt that I contributed to his death. And I was terrified that he felt alone or unwanted because, you know, throughout the years he and I had had fights or problems or conflicts. And I would think about that when I was falling asleep. And and I asked him one night, you know, are you mad at me? Do you hate me? Now that you've passed away, did you, uh, my dad used to always say when he was alive that we do like a review of our life when we passed and that we see all the ways that we impacted other people and all the ways that, um, uh, you know, other people impacted us. And, and I was asking him in my mind, did, did you see the bad things that I did? And, and did they, did they hurt you? And anyway, so I, I asked him to just come to me in a dream if he could. And he did. And he came to me in a dream and in the dream. So this was, this was right after he passed within the first week in the dream. He was glowing. Like he just looked beautiful. His skin was just golden and glowing is the best way to describe it. And the lighting was almost like it was like lighting from the set of a movie. It was just glowing. And he was dancing in the hallway of our house, holding our daughter's sailor. And they were having so much fun. And I was waving to them. And then the next scene of the dream, if you will, he was standing right in front of me. And I held his hands. And I looked him in the eye and I said, "Um, do you love me? And he laughed and said, yes. And I said, did you see all the mean things I did? And he said, he laughed again and said, yeah. But like, kind of like he was blowing me off. Like, you're ridiculous, yes. And then I said, do you know that I love you? And he said, yes. And I said, do you forgive me? And again, he laughed and he said, yes. And I said, did you see my dad? And then he like laughed really hard and was like, yes, I've seen your dad. And it almost felt like there was an inside joke there. Like, I don't know what it was. It was just a feeling I got. And then he was just, he was just smiling and glowing. We were holding hands. And then he said, I want you to pay attention for a second. And I said, okay. He said, new teachers are emerging. And I, I remember in my dream saying, oh, like, what does that mean? Or who, what are you talking about? And he just said, new teachers are emerging. Pay attention. And then he kind of just faded away. And I woke up in the middle of the night and I woke my husband up and I just said, he's here. He's, he was just here. Oh my God. We were holding hands. I, I can't even believe it. He was glowing. He was so happy. He was so loving. He forgives me. And it was such an impactful dream because I did not feel that guilt any longer. I felt like he came as a gift to me to help me release that guilt. And then fast forward, you know, several months and I've had, a, I've had a few other dreams of him in and one of them, he was at the park and he was pushing our, our daughters on the swing and, and we were just laughing. And then I had one more recently where I still, I still have felt guilt, you know, like even though I don't feel it quite as I, I definitely still have it. I mean, I think it would be, you know, very hard not to have that. And I definitely have, um, have had to kind of deal with that. And more recently he appeared to me in a dream and he said, sorry, I just had to take a drink of water. And he said um, that he could see that I was still carrying this guilt. And he said to me that in life and in death, there's no blame. There's no guilt. There's no fault that this there's, and, and he explained it as though there's no heaven and there's no hell that, 
the earth is a classroom. And when we incarnate into the human form that we take, when I became Serena and he became Mason, that we come here, that our soul signs up for this experience because the soul only wants to grow and expand. And he said that this earth is a classroom and that when we die energetically, we go to the same level or place as where we, as, as how we lived. So if you lived, um, it's not, it was very clear to me. It's, it's kind of hard to explain because when you have a dream, sometimes it's not even like they're saying the words. It's like they're conveying the feeling and you, you just get it. But the feeling and, and what he was explaining was that it's not about the manner in which you died. That's a very, very quick thing. So it's not like if you died in a car accident versus you died in a suicide versus you died in a, in a drug overdose, you're going there again. It was much more that the energy at which you live your life is energetically where you go when you go to the other side and that the lessons continue, but that there's no point in any human being carrying around guilt when someone else dies in, in the way that, you know, that Mason has died or, or a suicide or something like that. There's no point because that experience was for their soul. And the experience that I have in this lifetime is for mine. And that we're all on our own journey and that the guilt or the shame or the fear, it, it doesn't do anything to elevate the experience that I would have in this lifetime. And it doesn't do anything to fix whatever experience he had in this lifetime, because that is his own. And that was really the feeling that I had um, from this dream that I had with Mason more recently. Wow. That's uh, <laughs> such a powerful, powerful three dreams. Uh, especially the first one I never heard before. And wow, like to get that experience so soon after, you know, after he died to be able to feel forgiven, like, like people dream of those encounters um, with their loved one and you seem to be able to you know have these dreams at will <laughs> which is really nice for you um, maybe not for some other people um, but that's really really amazing that you had that and then the, the last dream you shared about you know him talking about the afterlife and stuff was that new to you or was that something you already knew and he was just you know reconfirming what you already knew well so it was it's kind of both I mean so I have to say I think because I've had this conversation with a friend of mine who lost her mother and she doesn't feel that she's ever had any signs for her mother. And she doesn't feel that she's had any dreams and she doesn't feel that her mother has come to her, communicated with her. And, and I believe that her mother has, and that she, my friend is of the mentality that it's just impossible. And therefore her experience is one where she she experiences that it's not possible. Therefore, she doesn't experience it. And I believe that because I was raised by a very spiritual father and a very spiritual mother, and these types of ideas were just normal in my home from the time I was a baby. Um, you know, the idea of reincarnation, of the soul moving on, of, of, of God being within every single one of us and us all being connected. And it's just something that I was raised on. So it's not something that I've ever questioned or doubted. It's just something that I've kind of just known. And so I believe that I have some of these experiences because I expect to have them. Or in other words, like I'm totally ready for them. And there's, there's nothing about me that's afraid of having them, mm -hmm. of having the dreams or having the signs or having the experiences. And I think that because there's an absence of fear there, they, they can come through more easily. Like to explain it a little differently, before my dad passed away, um, I'm not sure how familiar you, you both are with some of the Hay House work, but my dad did uh, a lecture, uh, a talk with a woman named Esther Hicks. And Esther Hicks, um, she's a channelist, so... <laughs> I know this sounds amazing. amazing. I've watched it. I've watched it. Like, yeah. So, I know exactly so what you're talking about. yeah. Okay, good. So Esther Hicks channels a, a being or an, an, a group of beings called Abraham and they're, um, they give profound messages. And 
my dad sat down with Esther uh, while she was channeling Abraham and they had a, they did a lecture together and it was released in a DVD. And for Christmas, before my dad passed away, he sent all of his children the DVD and asked us to watch it and to write him a letter about what was impactful about it if we wanted to get any Christmas presents from him. So, <laughs> so we did. So I watched it with my husband and um, I was pregnant at the time and it was great. We watched it and I wrote my dad a letter about it. And after my dad passed away, I kept thinking about that DVD. And the reason I kept thinking about it was because there was something that was said in there by Abraham that really stood out to me. And I believe that in hindsight, it was all in perfect order that my dad did this DVD with Esther Hicks and, and sent it to us and asked us to watch it because it gave me some type of awareness for when he passed. And what that was, was Esther Hicks lost her, her husband, Jerry, and they had been together for, for decades and they, they did the Abraham business together. And Esther Hicks is a channelist. And when her husband, Jerry, passed away. She could not find him, communicate with him, reach him. And she didn't understand why, because that was something she'd always been able to do, is to communicate with essentially spirit on the other side. And she had this uh, awakening or, or this epiphany, if you will, when Abraham came through to her and said, this whole time you've known that in order to experience anything in life, you have to become what it is that you are seeking, that everything in the world is energy, and energy vibrates at different frequencies. If you want love, you have to offer love. It's the same thing as the prayer of St. Francis. St. Francis didn't say, dear God, you know, I need some peace. Please just give me some peace. My life is a mess. He said, dear God, please make me an instrument of thy peace. And where there is not peace, let me bring it. And, and what Abraham was explaining to Esther was essentially the same thing, that your whole life you've known that like attracts like, that you have to become what it is that you're seeking in order to become a vibration, a vibrational match to it, in order to have it appear in your life. And Abraham went on to explain that where Jerry is, where the soul goes to, is a place that's free of judgment, that's full of joy, of love, of understanding, of compassion, and totally void of fear. And Esther, because she was so stricken with grief, she was not able to find him. Because when she would think about him or contemplate him, she could only contemplate the loss, the fear, the absence. She couldn't, she couldn't get to that place of, of love, of just the joy that they had, the memories. She only could think of what, what she was missing, which was that he was not there anymore in the physical. So once she had this realization, she got, she got really quiet and she was able to, to meditate or just sit quietly and think of all the different fun experiences they had. And she ended up start, starting to laugh, thinking of different memories and times and stories that they, that they had had throughout their lives. And almost immediately she was able to feel Jerry there and her experience changed from that point on. She felt him all the time when she went to a state of joy or love. And that was the biggest lesson that I took away from that DVD that my dad had us watch because when he passed away uh, eight months after I watched that, that DVD, the first thing I did when I got home after getting the call was sat by myself, then I said out loud to him, I'm going to do this. I'm going to grieve. I'm going to do this from a place of love. And I know that you're going to be able to communicate with me. And I'm, go and I'm going to be committed to staying open to the love that you still feel for me and that I feel for you. And I'm not going to go into a place of fear. And even though I might be sad at times, I'm not going to allow that to become the dominant theme of my life. And I said out loud, all right, soul, now give, oh, sorry, I'm not supposed to curse. But I said that to my dad. Now give me a sign. And, and I, you know, I was laughing. I was trying to elevate my energy. I was trying to make myself 
feel later because we would have we would have talked like that while he was alive. And um, and I just felt this urge to to go into my phone and to type in Wayne Dyer podcast. I had never, ever done this before. I did not even know that in an iPhone, it comes pre-programmed with a podcast app. So when I typed that in, the podcast app opened on my phone and Wayne Dyer came up and I clicked the first one, the first show that popped up under his name. And I listened to it and it was about a a young man who was calling because his mother had stage four cancer and he was going to lose her. And I thought that it was a beautiful message and I thought that it was wonderful what he was saying, but I did not feel that it was a personal sign to me until the last 30 seconds of the show, the very, very last 30 seconds of the show out of the blue, my dad said, and now as we're wrapping up, I would like to take a moment to ask everybody to send my daughter Serena love because she is going through a hard time right now. And I could not believe that that was in the last 30 seconds of the podcast, that he mentioned me by name and that he asked everybody to send me love because I was going through a hard time. And I just started crying and laughing and sneezing and snotting. And I just felt so overjoyed that he was able to communicate to me in some way. I got you. I hear you. You want, you want to stay connected, stay in the place of joy, stay in the place of love. And I will always come to you in that space because that is where I am now. And, and that stayed with me. And that's why I think I was able to have so many amazing experiences with my dad after he passed and, and they've continued with Mason um, after he passed as well. We've, we've, we've been able to continue this. And I really think it's because my hu- my husband and I have remained committed to staying in a place of love. And look, it doesn't mean that there are not profoundly sad times of longing and missing and and wanting and and regret and pain and sorrow there are but we always make a point of going back to the place of love and joy and knowing that that is where we can find them and they can find us wow i just want i feel like this is a sermon i'm learning all the grief (laughs) which is amazing and uh you know hopefully that'd be another book that you can write um because you have a lot of insights on the grief journey and you're open to not saying it's all flowers that you know there's a lot of pain but like how can you still feel sad and feel love at the same time is that what you're talking about and you've had a lot of experience to help you along the way that many people you know say they don't have for many reasons and you and you know we can talk about that later but there's there's just so much and so you've you've gained so much from loss to be able to talk about this stuff in such a beautiful way that uh, I'm so grateful you're able to come on the podcast and like talk about this and to share this experience about like really the challenge of grief is to continue to love. And I think that's where we're really getting at that the end of it all is that when you're in deep sorrow, you tend to close yourself off in the world. You tend to close your heart. Um, and the goal is to open your heart while you're grieving. Yeah. And, and in doing so, you will come to realize that that is where you can find the person that you're you're longing for the person that you're missing because that is where they are they are in a place of just of just pure love and that is what they want you to experience and that is what they are offering to you so you should offer it to yourself amazing amazing i know you didn't go through your whole dream with uh mason but i know you i'll put a link to it um but he he does talk Mm -hmm. about too the purpose of life is to love yourself right and to, to remain free of judgment for yourself. And I felt like that was such a big lesson that he was trying to get me to understand because as much as I, you know, have cool experiences and that kind of thing, I think I'm also a, a very harsh critic of myself. And, and he was essentially warning me, don't, don't go down that path of, of self, of self judgment or self condemnation, because it's, it's not the path that gets you where you want to go. It just keeps you stuck in the place that you don't want to be in. And, um, you know, I've had so many amazing experiences from him and my dad. I'm so grateful to both of them for continuing to guide me because Lord knows I need it. <laughs> we all need a little guidance here and there, you know, but it's nice that you're able to not only have those experiences, but learn from them. So then you can actually help others as you move forward. I think that's a beautiful thing that you can articulate what you've learned. You don't just have to like share the experience, but you're articulating what you've learned from the experience, which makes it meaningful. Well, thank you. <laughs> and uh what was I gonna say? I'm gonna say just as a tip maybe for people who are going through grief and they are 
are having difficulty loving themselves. What are some things that uh, you could say to those people? I, 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 I would just hold the space for you to experience your grief because it is everyone's own unique experience. And I think that it's really important to just hold the space to allow them to go through what it is that they're going through, but ultimately to know that we come from love and we return to love and anyone who has passed away uh, from what I've gathered from studying this topic and being, and being a student of it and, and growing up with these sort of teachings, it's that, it's that the, the experience that you have while you live is one that your soul signed up for, that each of our souls signed up for to grow and to expand. And it's very hard to grow and expand when we're in a place of fear and stress and guilt and shame and anger and sadness. But if we can transform ourselves to, to witness what we are going through and still love ourselves throughout, I think that it can become um, a totally beautiful, life-changing process that ultimately we are all going to go through. We are all, if we're lucky to live long enough, we're all going to experience some loss. We're all going to experience some grief. But if you can stay awake during those teachings, I believe that you will have come here and done what your soul signed up for you to do. That's beautiful. Yeah, very much so. I'm just like so many, I don't know what to say, but like so many wonderful reminders for everybody who's listening, like so many really good jewels for people to take moving forward in their grief. And even people who, you know, aren't grieving right now through something, but just going through life, like really important things to just remember and to help you navigate life situation with more grace and beauty and meaning and you've just been so candid and shared some really amazing stuff mysterious stuff too and and has me thinking about my own dreams and my own um you know connections with the people in my life that have crossed over and just all the cool ways that we keep connected with those that we love and you know, tips for keeping that going and stuff. So thank you for the reminder today, bringing everything to the forefront. I'm really grateful this, for this conversation and your honesty uh, is is really refreshing and and beautiful. And, and I highly doubt you announced anything your parents didn't want you to. So that's good. <laughs> um, yeah, I just really... Well, thank you. Well, I'm happy to be here today. Yeah. And just and just to wrap up, we always like to ask one last question um, of our guests, and that is, what dream would you want to have of someone who's died, if you could tonight? I would want to have a dream with my father, with Mason, with my husband and my two girls and my future son that, that I'm carrying. And I would want to have a dream where we're all having a party and full of joy and dancing because I would just love to have that experience of all of us being present in the room together in a state of joy. Wow, that's cool. It sounds like a fun dream. Yeah, well, I hope I get invited to it. (laughs) Are you a good dancer or no? No, I'm a terrible dancer. So would you be dancing terribly in the dream or would you be like a pro? No, I'd be dancing terribly, but I'd be totally embracing that. I No no shame in my game when it comes to dancing. Amazing. That's funny. That's so amazing. So yes, uh, thank you for just being yourself, coming on here, sharing so much about your journey and what you've learned along the way and the struggle of love. And you said it's not an easy, you know, it's, you know, we can have these dreams um, spiritual or not, you know, the game is still about love. And to try to get there is sort of said the goal. And it's not, I said, it's not an easy journey, but if that's part of your goal, you can achieve it. You know, as you can keep moving forward and keep it on your mind, you'll start looking at things a little differently on how things are trying to teach you on where you're not and where you need to be sort of thing. So I think right. it's, I think it's just fabulous for just who you are and what grief has changed you into. Uh, is a it's a beautiful statement I'm getting from this uh, just from this interview. Well, thank you so much. 
Yeah, so Serena, if uh, you could let anyone know if they want to sort of read the full article of your dreams that you've had um, or where they can find you on Instagram and stuff, uh, that'd be great. Sure, I'm on Facebook um, under Serena Dyer and I have an Instagram, Serena Dyer Pisoni. Pisoni is my married name. So uh, that's my Instagram name, Serena Dyer Pisoni, and I share things, you know, pretty regularly on there. So I'm happy to connect. And I also have a website, which is serenadyer.com, where I get emails and, and uh, messages and communicate with, with people from all around the world there. So if you're looking for me, you'll find me. Amazing, amazing. So thank you again for coming on. Really appreciate it. It was a very powerful episode and you some very powerful dreams that, you know, I know a lot of people want to have, but and you've just been lucky enough to to have them and to be able to share them with us. I think it's amazing. And so to well, for our you. for our platform, if you want to check out griefdreams.ca, you can find more information on the topic. And if you have Facebook, you can join the Grief Dreams Facebook group or check us out on Instagram or Twitter at Grief Dreams. And if you want to come on the show yourself or you have a dream you want to share, you can always email me or email us um, and we'd love to have you on. Um, and if you want more information about Jade, she's on the Grief Dreams team site. So if you just go to griefdreams.ca and there's a team page, you can know all about her. And if you'd like to say at the end of the podcast, with love and gratitude from us to you. Introduce myself. You have introduced yourself. This is a very good conversation.